This is episode number five with Kit Lachlan. You simply cannot make the body do something it doesn't want to do. You have to lead it to doing that. The acquisition of flexibility will actually change you at your core. It moves from being a pain slash panic response to, ah, I'm feeling a stretch sensation in my muscles. What's up? Welcome back to Anchors of Health. I'm your host, Bill Choi of anchorsofhealth.com, and today's episode under the Movement Anchor is all about stretching and flexibility. We get in deep on this topic, and for me personally, this is one of my favorite episodes because it's an area that is probably the least understood. You'll find out the difference between making an adult body flexible versus a child's body flexible, the reason why it's so difficult for adults to gain flexibility, the best way to approach stretching, why the normal recommendations for stretching are ineffective, and so much more. My guest, Kit Lachlan is the founder and creator of Stretch Therapy and he's been teaching it for over 30 years all around the world to people of all ages including practitioners of medicine, physiotherapy, yoga, Pilates, professional athletes and everyone in between. He's the author of three best-selling books, Stretching and Flexibility, Overcoming Neck and Back Pain and Stretching and Pregnancy. He was awarded a Master of Letters degree by the Science Faculty of the Australian National University in Canberra and was granted an Australian Postgraduate Research Award for PhD research where back pain was the main case study. And I will say this, I have never found someone as knowledgeable about stretching as kids. So I hope you guys get a lot out of this because I definitely did. We ran a little long in this episode because there was just so much to cover. So let's just dive right in. Here's Kit Lachlan. Kit, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Bill. It's, It's a great pleasure and an honor to be here. It's definitely an honor to have you on the show, Kit. Now, I have been looking forward to talking to you all week. I found out about you a few years ago, but in preparation for this interview, I found myself absolutely hooked even further into your work. There's just so much depth and wisdom you have on this subject. And in my opinion, flexibility and stretching is kind of an afterthought. People tend to brush it to the side, especially men. Mm-hmm. And it's something that people think they know a lot about, but it's actually an area that is not well understood. I'm guilty of that myself. And when I first learned about you, one of the things that really stuck out to me was how you came into flexibility as an adult, unlike most flexibility experts who were flexible from childhood. Can you talk about how making a child's body flexible is completely different than making an adult body flexible? Yeah, uh, and what you say is absolutely accurate. If you go to most Pilates studios where they teach flexibility work or most dance studios where the teachers themselves became flexible as children and certainly all gymnastic studios and they're, you know, the, because body weight training, gymnastic style training, men's gymnastics training, I should say, has become so popular now internationally. These are all really important things to understand. The vast majority of the people who are teaching those areas, and certainly this is true for many yoga teachers as well, who very often come from a dance or gymnastics background in the beginning, and by the time that person is 15 or 16 years of age, they have about 10,000 hours of general training in their body. They start at three or four, and by the time they're 16, just just consider that staggering figure 10,000 hours minimum I I would say for any competitive gymnast let's say now the point is that children's fascia is completely soft compared to adult fascia but there's another factor which no one ever talks about and that is a child has when they're four five six they do not have a clear rigid understanding of who they are in the world why that's important will become clearer later on but this this idea of who you are how you relate to other people, 
how you position yourself in relation to other people, whether you see yourself as a dominant kind of person or a submissive person. I'm, I'm just making a very broad brush um, sketch here. The way that you present to the world and the way you think the world thinks about you as an adult is the thing that you are locked into. In fact, we talk about people's postural signature. And, and by that, I mean each person's postural signature is unique and you can recognize someone 20, 30 years later by the way they move and by the way they hold themselves. Now, in, a, in the case of a young child in that sort of three, four, five, six range, up to 10 probably, the ego is not anywhere near as fully formed and it doesn't actually control the idea of what the ch child thinks he or she can do. It's just absolutely typical in gymnastics and in dance too, but gymnastics probably more dramatically. People will describe their young students as fearless. And that is another dimension to the ego, which is not immediately obvious. Your own sense of self-preservation, your anxiousness about whether or not you're going to fall off the beam and all the other things that you see young gymnasts doing fearlessly, those things form later in life. And they are literally a complex intersecting set of tension webs in the body that stop you from being flexible. They literally limit the way you think. They literally limit what you can do physically with your body. And these are the limits that actually have to be changed when you're working with flexibility as an adult. This is not the case with children. Children, in fact, can use pretty much any stretching system and become flexible. But um, after about the age of 12, 10, between 10 and 12, the adult pattern, or the pattern I should say that will become the fixed adult pattern, is already visible in those young bodies. It's not there at between 4 and 7 or 8. It's just simply not present. What you said is so true. My daughter's in gymnastics and she is definitely fearless, as well as all the other kids in her class. Now, you have a very interesting story. Can you walk us through your story of what got you interested in flexibility in the first place? Yeah, that, that's a, that, can, that can be a quick and simple one. Basically, well, it's kind of funny now that I think about it, but I've had two different athletic careers. I was a, a middle distance runner, but I was also an Olympic lifter at a different time. Um, and when I, when I stopped that activity, and I used to be a television director as well, I think I mentioned to you, I was the national director of Nationwide on the ABC for a number of years. I threw all that in and I went to Japan to study or to further my martial arts training, which is the other interest, the third interest that I'd had over this whole period of time. And when I got to Japan, and I'd been a martial artist on and off, and I'd also trained in a professional boxing gym for a couple of years before I went to Japan, the point of mentioning all of this and that background is that when I went to Japan, um, I could just touch my toes. That was the, my level of flexibility. Um, but when I was a middle distance runner, someone had taken a photograph of me trying to touch my toes after an interval training session at the at the university's oval and I, I my back was bent like a, a pretzel I suppose you'd say and my fingers hardly came below my knees and so a, as a middle distance runner that's pretty typical flexibility by the way that r middle distance runners are not like sprinters who have quite good flexibility usually but anyway cut a long story short when I got to Japan my martial arts teachers in this dojo could not understand or accept why I didn't have perfect flexibility as I'd been training on and off in martial arts for that pre previous 10-year period. And all of them, likewise, had become flexible as children. This is not a generally known thing, but in Japan, and this has been since the Second World War, 
there are two sessions a day called Radio Taiso, which means radio exercise. And all schools literally stop for two 15-minute sessions a day. And everyone gets out of the classroom, into the playground, and they stretch for 15 minutes. Twice a day, like clockwork. The fact is they were just con uh, continuing a habit that they'd actually acquired at school at a very young age. So to be a martial artist in Japan at the age of 30, which is what I was, and not be perfectly flexible was something these people simply could not understand. <laughs> and how did that make you feel? I mean, it was embarrassing, to be honest with you. You're in, you're in a room of 50 or 60 people, and you're the only person who can't do reasonable front splits or side splits or a full backbend. And that's just considered normal in that environment, truly. So what the question is, then what do you do about that? I imagine that many of your listeners who you mentioned before um, are professionals or office workers or people who are largely chained to a desk. Um, your body will take on the set, we, we call it, or the postural signature of exactly what you do with it the majority of your hours in the day. And if you're sitting at a desk for six or eight or 10 or 12 hours a day and you experience your life as stressful, you can guarantee that that will have certain physical effects in the body and those physical effects will be set very firmly in the physical body. And look, on that note, Bill, when we talk about the physical body, we are never just talking about the physical body and I need to make this point early. No other system of medicine divides the body from the mind in the way that our system does. In fact, the two systems of medicine that deal with mental problems and physical problems, they are parallel systems in Western medicine and the crossover is extremely poor. If, for example, you have an ache or a pain somewhere and it goes on for long enough, at some point, the practitioner of the physical medicine will say, look, I think this could be in your head. You'll need to go and see Dr. X and Dr. X then will be looking at your symptoms from a completely different perspective from the perspective of psychology or psychiatry um, that's a very, very different worldview. The two worldviews, well, really, it's a Cartesian inheritance. We inherited um, Rene Descartes' perspective, I think, therefore, I am, and the mind was divided from the body, and I'd say irrevocably since then. But when you look at the whole human being, the mind and the body occupy the same time and space. They're actually part of the same package. But the idea that you have about yourself and the question of whether or not you experience your life as stressful, those two things play hugely into what physical flexibility will demonstrate and also play into the different tools that you need to unlock that body. So as you mentioned, for those that are sitting for most of the day, what are specifically the characteristic changes in the shape of the physical body that you're seeing? Oh, um, from a physical flexibility point of view, anyone that spends a significant amount of time sitting, and that can be as little as four or five hours a day, and most of your audience will be sitting for a lot longer than that, you can absolutely bet the cost of your first consultation that their hip flexors will be desperately tight. Now, why are the hip flexors, I mean, you could be forgiven if you've read some of my stuff, you could be forgiven for thinking that I think the hip flexors are the key to unlocking the whole body. And, and in, I'm going to say now publicly that in a very real way, they are. The reason they are is not obvious. When you're sitting at a desk, in fact, if anyone's listening now and they're sitting, just try lifting one knee up without moving the rest of your body or slumping and you'll find that only comes up six or eight or ten inches that sitting position is the position of maximum contraction of the hip flexors. And so when you sit for eight or ten hours a day, and, and the next bit is critical, and experience your life as stressful, 
That is to say, you've got to have something done by the close of business or people are making completely unreasonable demands on your time. And in the professional world, this is just the normal environment that you operate in. Um, and if you're a double A or triple A personality and you're an adrenaline junkie, the, all the mechanisms that I'm talking about will be driven harder. But you are telling your body that the position that you're in now is meaningful and important to you. Why? Because you're sitting in it for 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day. And the characteristic changes that happen in the body is a, a very significant shortening of the hip flexors. In fact, in fact, even in yoga classes, there's no yoga pose unless you modify a particular pose the way we have and align the hips in the way that we recommend. Not even something like the warrior pose stretches the hip flexors effectively because they actually focus on an alignment which actually turns the back leg's hip away from the stretch instead of into it, which has to be done in order to make it effective. So one thing is the hip flexors will be physically tight, but I'll, get, I'll come back to that in a moment. The second thing that will happen is that there'll be a, an increasing tendency towards kyphosis, which means an increased curvature in the thoracic spine, and the cervical lordosis, which is the backward-facing curve between the head and the shoulders, that normally increases as well. And over time, further time, the head, if we look at where the head sits in relation to either the shoulder joint or the plane of the feet or the alignment of the ankles is probably a better way to describe it, the ankle bone, let's say, you'll see what's called technically a head forward posture will also develop in response to that increased kyphosis. And when you stand up from your long day at the desk, because your hip flexors are short, your pelvis will be anteriorly tilted and they are the classic shapes of the modern body. An anterior pelvic tilt, the lower abdominal area protrudes slightly as a result of this, an increased curvature in the thoracic spine, shoulders moving forward on the ribcage purely in response to gravity's effect on how the shoulder joint sits on the ribcage and a head forward posture. And just for our listeners that aren't too familiar with those terms, anterior pelvic tilt is... The best way to picture that is if you had a bowl of water as your pelvis and you're tilting it forward to pour out the water in front of you. That would be anterior pelvic tilt. Now look, some people, I mean I've seen CrossFit athletes who have absolutely superb posture. I'm not talking about everyone. When, whenever we generalize, one of the problems of generalizing is that there will be you know, a significant number of people who don't actually fit that generalization. What I'm talking about is if you sit at a desk for long hours a day, experience your life as stressful and don't take remediation type actions which is all that stretching is and i'll develop that theme in a moment too if you want um, then these are the changes that will happen to your body over time and if you want any proof of this just walk around a university campus sometime and look at and see what the the elderly academics look like they all have the same body shape so these positions that we're locked into for most of the day you refer to it as postural signatures you mentioned it earlier and and you also mentioned it in your book can you elaborate what you mean by that? What we mean by that, when we use that term, we mean, supposing I could see your face while you were listening to me talk, your face and body will be in the body language of someone who's listening interestedly to a conversation he's been anticipating for a while. And so we, we, can, we, can, we can see in the mind's eye exactly what that looks like. Now picture someone who's at a meeting, one of the innumerable number of meetings that most executives have these days they're sitting back in their chair their arms are crossed their eyes are looking down the body is slumped that body language is telling you a completely different story about that individual 
But this is what's not obvious, Bill. Your body language is you. And so when we're talking about some senior executive who has that beginning of a kyphosis and a slight head forward posture and the position of the shoulders are not ideal, what's happening over time with the repeated let's call them assaults of the demands of normal working life. I mean, some of these demands are extreme. People yell at you, you're, you're expected to do more with less and all the other things that the modern work environment has literally institutionalized. The heart area is being protected. That's actually what posture is. It's a method, a way of protecting your core areas, the front of your throat, um, the ab abdominal area or your groin. These are the key you know, areas that the body protects automatically. And so what, what one has been doing inadvertently by sitting all those hours in an office in a, in a let's say, a relatively unpleasant environment is your all the protection mechanisms of your body have been encouraged to manifest. The shape of the body itself is nothing more than what your body has done over the last five or ten years. When you hold your body in a particular configuration or you think about yourself in a particular way, you know, I'm here on the totem pole, I'm trying to get higher on the totem pole, I've got to be competitive, I've got to be aggressive, I've got to be this, that and the other, they become solidified or reified as a technical term, which means made physically real. They become set in the body and they are what you present at the meeting. They are how you see yourself in the world and that is the shape and the structure that people around you will respond to. So let me give you let me give you a thought experiment here. As a, as an ex philosopher, we we call them Gedanken. It's a German word. It means thought experiment. They're, they're so helpful. Everyone in your audience has held a baby at some point in their lives, and when you look down on that little being and you see these completely open, innocent eyes looking back at you, what happens in the front of your body? The whole front of your body softens. And we experience, we call that that pattern of tension. We call that pattern of tension love or uh, something, a positive emotion of some sort. But when you're standing outside um, the liquor store and some, you know, drunken, aggressive guy comes out and looks in your direction, your body will form a completely different shape automatically. That'll be your protection mode, or it could be your alpha male mode, or whatever it is. But the point is this: all Western psychology and psychiatry call emotions, they're not properties of the brain. The brain reflects on changes of the state of tension in the body, and then we experience that emotion. Let me give you, let me give you another thought experiment. You're sitting in your lounge room with your loved one. You had a glass of wine or two, dinner over an hour or so, and you're having a romantic conversation with each other, and the phone rings. No problem. The candles are flickering in the background and, you know, things are looking good, you walk over to the telephone, you pick up the telephone, you're still feeling sensational, and then when the person at the other end of the telephone speaks, it turns out it's your hated father-in-law, whom you haven't seen or heard for a few years because he's actually in an institution in another country, let's say. But here's the thing, as soon as, in the instance of hearing the hated father-in-law's voice, what happens in your body? Your body organizes itself into hated father-in-law mode. A unique pattern of tension and concomitant thoughts and emotional states and all the rest of it that, that your mind ties to that person. Do you get it? Oh, yes. And, and, and so when you look at down at that little baby 
and look into that into that beautiful face, those patterns simply relax. And we call the relaxed patterns something else. All the positive emotions, all of them without exception, are simply relaxations of other states which we call negative emotions. So what what's the tie-in to what we're talking about? It is very simple. When you acquire new ranges of movement as an adult, not as a child, because remember the stuff I've been talking about is not formed in a child, so there's no resistance to opening. But when you take that adult body, which is just resistant city, frankly, I mean, people are so rigid. Uh, well, not everyone, of course. If, if, if people have a, a habit of doing stretching or yoga or tai chi or something else where you know the, the ranges of movement that the body is capable of are explored on a regular basis then you won't exhibit what i'm talking about but if you're just an average joe or joanne who works in an office you know 10 hours a day then your body will be locked into certain restricted ranges of movement and so we have to find ways of working with that resistance. And our system, the stretch therapy system, is exactly what this is about. We have identified basically all the restrictions to becoming flexible, which no one ever talks about. I mean, you get online and look at people. My favorite is get side splits in two weeks. Well, <laughs> you know, we've all seen them. Some impossibly limber girl, you see, although there's a couple of guys out there who have perfect side splits as well. Um, they will literally just stand up, um, slide their feet apart and sit down into half side splits and just say, well, if you practice this every day for two weeks, you'll have side splits. That is complete nonsense. Um, to get side splits back in my own case, for example, it's been 10 years work Wow. Um, to get it back. And I love that because you're giving us realistic expectations. So what is the best way for people to approach or think about gaining flexibility? Realistically, if you're 25 years of age or 35 years of age and you want to be flexible, in my opinion, the best way to think about it is to consider a five-year or 10-year timeline and simply do the work in a non-obsessive way with no regard to the outcome, um, one or two stretching sessions a week on your tightest areas um, and just wait for the, thing, the changes to unfold by themselves. Because one thing I can tell you, having taught flexibility work for 30-something years now, the, the, the usual affliction that men have, which is we're basically afflicted by, by what I call the more machine, which is a, a fundamental approach to, to life which says if some is good, then more must be better. Um, most people think that they do have to stretch every day and most people think they'd have to push harder than the, and make the body respond faster than the body actually wants to respond. And I can tell you, the body will win every time. You simply cannot make the body do something it doesn't want to do. You have to lead it to doing that. We, we have a saying in our work, and incidentally, this also reveals one of the deepest problems in flexibility, which is why there's so little written about it that's actually any good compared to, say, aerobic training or strength training. Those two areas of human endeavor are extremely well understood, and, I, and there will be no major discoveries made in either of those areas in my lifetime. If you follow let's say periodization, Tudor Bompers thing in weight training, or you follow any of the people who are the gurus of aerobic training, if you follow their general prescriptions, you'll get fitter and or stronger. There's just no doubt about that. But following the prescriptions of all the internet gurus um, in stretching, it'll be really hit and miss as to whether or not you can change your body in this way. Um, the, the internal restrictions 
to opening your body up are the things that we have specialized in over this time because look i'll cut a very long story short i taught at a university the university in canberra is called the australian national university it's, uh, we ran classes there uh, for academics and outside people and from ranges of ages from 18 to i think 78 was our oldest student and over the period of running those classes for 27 years, and we had something like 15 teachers teaching with us, all of whom met every week to talk about and to practice new things, I can tell you uh, we have taught hands-on directly something like about 27,000 people over that period of time. That would be accurate within 1,000 either wow. way. It's a huge number. And what we found is that the normal recommendations for stretching are simply ineffective. They simply do not work with adults. They are they will be perfectly effective with, with um, children's bodies. And if the child then continues into teenage years while not letting themselves get inflexible, I mean, then those same simple methods will work um, as you become an adult as well. And from that point on, you will be flexible your whole life. But that is a very small percentage of the population have that experience. Right. And, and, and Kit, you're right. The, the thing you commonly hear is, you know, three sets of 30-second holds. It's ridiculous. Well, well and, and not, only, not only that, the research that tries to support this ability is flat-out deceitful. And the reason is the research is never done for a long enough period of time. The research has all been on university cohorts, so they're all young men or young women, um, and, and the research never goes for more than a university semester, which is typically somewhere between 10 and 14 weeks. And what we've shown in our work is that... You, if you are using the most sophisticated method, you definitely will see a change in that period of time. But unlike aerobic training and strength training, and you'll never hear this said anywhere, flexibility training, the greatest resistance to change is actually in the beginning of the process, not at the end. In resistance training or aerobic training, the greatest improvements occur at the beginning. And you know this is true. You're right, it is. Um, Basically, you'll hit your first plateau in aerobic training or strength training maybe three or four months in, but you will have got immensely fitter or stronger in that four months. Someone doing flexibility training, things hardly have changed in that time. And so we need to have a much longer horizon if we want to become flexible. But this is the interesting thing. The longer you do flexibility training, the more quickly you acquire the, you know, the far reaches, whereas in strength training and aerobic training, you plateau and every improvement comes with greater effort. It's completely, completely different. So when you gain this new range of motion, how long would you say that it lasts? If you could even put a number on that, but... <laughs> I can, not a number, a quality. I'll, I'll approach from a qualitative perspective. And if you can also talk about what's required to maintain it as well. Yeah, the, the key thing is... And for most people who are actively engaged in some sport or activity, the activity itself maintains the gains. Now, let me just, I'll put it in more formal terms. If you want a flexibility improvement to actually become embodied, by that we mean the body permanently, the body and the mind. Let's talk about that body-mind complex as a single thing. If you want the body-mind to change permanently, you absolutely must incorporate that new movement in your ordinary activities. So to give you a perfect example of what I mean, um, this will sound a bit odd, but I use a squat toilet every day. And the reason is that all of those processes just occur much better. I mean, 
let me take a side step from that. The vast majority of the world do not sit on a toilet to go to the toilet. They squat. And this is just, I mean, I've, I've given this little chat on countless numbers of workshops now. You can just see people's eyebrows go up and down because most people can't even squat. Um, in the majority of the world that do not live on chairs and have tables in or offices in their environment, when two people get together to have a conversation, they do not stand to talk, Bill. They squat to talk. For most people in the world, apart from we Westerners, the squat is the primary position of rest. It keeps your ass out of the dirt and you simply squat down, you have a a cigarette or a, a chin wag or a drink with your friends and you'll be in that position for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. No one in the underdeveloped world thinks twice about doing that. Literally no one. Old ladies, old men squat to talk. Do you get what I mean? Absolutely. The point is this. Most Westerners, if you ask them to squat down with parallel feet, especially with their feet together, they just fall over backwards. Um, the hips are not loose enough, but the main reason is ankles are not loose enough. No one has tight ankles in the third world. Not a single not a single human being. It doesn't matter how old they are. Why? Because they squat every day. So, getting back to the, the main point of this thread in the conversation, if you acquire a new range of movement by using strong ankle stretching exercises and you softening techniques to soften the the calves and the hamstrings so they flow sideways, which is absolutely essential in a full squat, and it has nothing to do with how big your legs are. Um, and in fact, our first program on the Vimeo On Demand channel is Master the Full Squat. It is so fundamental. My friend Paul Check um, talked about primal movement patterns, and the squat is the first of the primal movement patterns. If you can't squat and you go off to the gym or particularly a CrossFit establishment and you try to do the things that they will want you to do, you are an injury waiting to happen. The range of movement has to come first. Unless you're doing something like, if you can get into a position, a good position for a back squat or a front squat, then of course you can use the weight to stretch you. That will work perfectly well and that is absolutely typical in an Olympic lifting gym. Anyway, so the point is this, if, you, if you're stretching legs apart or getting back, back bending into your body, opening your chest and all the other things that we might talk about because there's an infinite number of positions the body can be put into but let's say there's half a dozen major poses that you want to master in order to call yourself flexible and i'll just run through them side splits or something close to it um a, a, a pose that's called the pancake or it's called upavista konasana in yoga that's where you sit on the ground you spread your legs apart but only far enough so that you can still hold the inside of your feet by your hands and you pull yourself forward and you put your chest and tummy on the ground with a straight back. Everyone, everyone knows this one. Beautiful looking position. One in 10,000 people can do it. Um, every child can do that. Literally every child on the planet can do that. Up until the age of about two and a half. And then they start to imitate your movement patterns. And they lose it. They don't do it. So they lose it. And so that's really a roundabout way of answering your first question. How do you maintain a range of movement that you acquire through some technique and it doesn't matter which one it must be incorporated into your normal daily life somehow so i use a squat toilet and i do a cosset squat and a skandasana which is a slightly more difficult version of a cosset squat every day it takes me 30 seconds or a minute yesterday for example i went to pick up some horseradish from the local farmer's market i was four minutes early and i spent that four minutes doing cosset squats and skandasana so that was yesterday's workout that's it done done and dusted because that is my normal range of movement 
if you want to get the flexibility to be able to do a Cossack squat, you are going to have to invest some, invest some time and energy into it if you don't already have that in your body. And in general, how many times a week do you recommend? Twice a week is ideal for most people. Actually, the perfect frequency is once every eight days, but that doesn't fit in eight, uh, um, a seven-day week. So we just say twice a week, so you'll, you'll have a few days off and, and a few days off in between the sessions. And if you really want to make progress, and no one will like to hear this, but if you really want to make progress, you have to find out where your tightest spots are and concentrate on those. Let me give you another image to, to play with. When you go to a yoga class, if any of you in the audience have been to a yoga class, you'll see this every yoga class you go to. What do people warm up when they go to a yoga class? Well, they warm up their hamstrings. What muscle do they least need to warm up? Hamstrings. Their hamstrings. Why do they warm up their hamstring? Partly it's a habit. That's what we do. And secondly, they want to look flexible. They're in a room full of people and everything is competitive these days. So you want to start off with something that shows you're part of the flexible group. So you stretch your hamstrings. It's silly really because what you really need to stretch are your hip flexors and backward bending for most people. But I have never seen anyone stretch their hip flexors properly or do a full back bend in a warm-up session for yoga class. Now, there must be exceptions. I'm sure there'll be someone <laughs> in the comment section saying, no, no, I always do backward bend. And good on you if you do. Because backward bending is absolutely the most important range of movement for the human body, especially as it ages. Because all the changes that accompany aging that we call aging are, in fact, the opposite movements that I described much earlier in the conversation, which was shoulders hunching forward, head being positioned forward in relation to the shoulders, upper back bending forwards, etc., etc., etc. All those changes we call aging. Do you see the, the key point here? Right, right. If you do not have those changes in your body, your body will not actually be old even though you might be 65 or 70. Now, that is not an obvious thing, but I absolutely assure you it is the case. If you could see what my cohorts and I do or what I do with my own body, um, it is what you do with your body that determines how it ages and also, at any given time, how old it functions like. So I've got better flexibility than most 25-year-olds. It's not perfect by any means. It's just better than most 25-year-olds, which means that's what I look like. I can balance. I can stand on one leg. Um, I can push a wheelbarrow full of cement along um, a narrow piece of timber. I was doing that this morning, etc., etc., etc. I was on a roof yesterday. Oh, I don't know, eight and a half meters off the ground, I guess, tied on, um, clearing out the gutters. But I mean, most of my colleagues wouldn't even consider getting up on the roof because they would feel unstable. Do you see what I mean? The whole of one's quality of life is literally comprised of one's movement patterns. These are not things that one wants to tack on at the end of a workout. They're, they are the things that you want to focus on primarily. You mentioned so many great points, and, and you're right. It's not something that we should just tack on at the end of the workout. So... For those listening, the big take-home message is that we need to incorporate more movement into our daily life, whether that's getting into a squat position a few times during the day or stretching your hip flexors. I mean, those are all simple things that you can incorporate during the day. Uh, and, and we need to break up a lot of that time where we're fixed in that sitting position. Now, Kit, I want to get more into your system of stretching. A lot of people are familiar with yoga and Pilates. So how is stretch therapy different than those two practices? Well, firstly, yoga and Pilates are two completely different beasts. 
I'll tell you something about the history of Pilates which will amuse most of your listeners because they won't know this. Before Joe, the old, the original guy, Joe Pilates, Joseph Pilates, before Joe designed his exercise system, he had been a champion boxer and a champion something else. What was it? No, he was a champion gymnast. Then he became a champion boxer. The point is he was already flexible and he had incredible strength and endurance. His body was in, was in no way normal in the way that we'd, I'm using the word normal now, meaning the statistical sense of normal. And so what, what we're in now is in an era where what are called the first generation Pilates teachers are starting to die out now. And so the second and third generation Pilates teachers are now the ones that are dominating the marketplace. And there's at least six distinct schools of Pilates now, all of whom, one of at least which the, the physiotherapy based ones, they claim that their stuff is evidence based. And then there are other schools which claim that no 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 our stuff is uh, classical you know we can trace a direct inheritance from person x or person y so basically we were in a largely marketing exercise now if i can put it that way without sounding too harsh the actual pilates system of exercises and this will really shock you the mat exercises are nothing more or less than the conditioning exercises for men's gymnastics that are taught to children in gymnastics gyms all around the world, even now. That has not changed much in 100 years, believe it or not. And Joe was an ex-gymnast, and so when you look at all of those mat exercises, you can find their equivalent or close equivalents in the standard warming up routine that any young gymnast will go through. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Now, as for yoga, there are hundreds of different schools of yoga. Some schools of yoga only chant. They don't do any physical postures whatsoever. Their breath work is contained in the chanting work. Some only meditate. The Raj Yoga schools are devotional schools. They practice love. They don't do any physical postures, etc., etc. Now, what most people uh, think about when they hear the word yoga, they're thinking of something that technically is described as Hatha Yoga. Hatha means sun and moon. And Hatha Yoga is the physical postures of yoga. But Bill, again, like most things that have been brought into the West, that is one-eighth of the entire canon of yoga. The physical postures of yoga are considered not to be the most important parts of yoga. Here's something that will blow your mind. Karma yoga, or public service, is one of the eight limbs of yoga, as, as described by Patanjali, who's the sage, the original person who, in his aphorisms, he called the Yoga Sutta, that actually described what yoga is all about. The, the physical postures are one small part. Meditation is a major part. Breathing exercises are a major part. Um, public service or doing good deeds is a major part. None of that's made it into the West hardly. Anyway, so the point is this. People think they know what they're talking about when they say, oh, I'm going to a yoga school. But man, there are so many different schools of yoga and they focus on different things. You, one has to be, I think, a bit more specific. And the same with Pilates. You can go to Pilates schools which which have a heavy emphasis on flexibility, but they're in the minority, um, and so on and so forth. And so you ask me what would be different about going to a stretch therapy class if you could find one. Well, simply, over that 27-year period where my cohorts and I were literally researching and sieging the hell out of this whole problem of how to take a, an adult body and to make it flexible, we learnt a huge number of things which are not recorded anywhere except in our materials. And I don't want to give the impression that 
you know, we're some kind of esoteric sect who has inner secrets and you've got to work with us and pay us a lot of money in order to get our inner secrets. Look, my most important exercises are free on YouTube. My, my personal philosophy can be summed up very simply. Do some good is the first point of it. Second point of it is have some fun. And the third point, and it's, it's definitely the last on the list, is to make some money. And we don't make a lot of money doing what we do because we concentrate on the first two things. But the upside of that is that we have the most fantastic lifestyle and we're surrounded by some of the most interesting people that I've ever met anywhere on the planet who happen to feel and think the same way as we do. But the, the, the short story for on the technical side of what someone would get out of a stretch therapy class or a stretch therapy product is simply extremely efficient and absolutely tried and true methods that will work with the majority of people who work with them and you will literally be changing yourself from the inside out. You will notice change within six months. It'll be significant change. You'll feel different. You'll function differently. Um, and you'll be incorporating, you'll be discovering new movement patterns in your daily life that you didn't think you had and it will not be by deliberate choice. Once the body has been unlocked, all of these patterns, which we believe are hardwired in the system, will manifest themselves when they're required. You'll be bending down and you'll suddenly realise that you're bending down with a perfectly straight back and that's because your hips and hamstrings are loose enough to do that and it will feel excellent to do that. And so on and so forth. Look, there's just a huge amount more that, that I could talk about on any of those subjects, but that will just give you a, a, a sketch, if you like, to set the scene. So I'm going to stop talking for a while, and you're going to ask me some questions, I hope. <laughs> Kit, what is the origin of your system, and how has it evolved over the years? The system that we teach, or the system that is now called stretch therapy, did not emerge from another person's work. It, it, isn't, it hasn't been inherited it hasn't been passed on um, in, through generations. Like, for example, when I was studying yoga, uh, when I was much, much, much younger, when I was in my 20s, if I asked the yoga teacher in that era, so we're talking in the 70s, why do you do it this way? They will say, because this is the way we do it in our school. Now, for me, that was, not a, it was never a satisfactory answer. And in my opinion, it, no one should be satisfied with that answer. There has to be a reason behind the fact that that's the way we do it or that's part of our tradition. That's a starting point only. And so in our system, because of my training, I'm a, I'm a logician by training and I got a master's degree and I did five years of fully funded PhD research in an area that I created for myself in this area, I can tell you just being told that that's the way we do it is no kind of an answer for me. So in the 27 years that I taught at the university, I was surrounded by people who had similar inquiring minds and all of the teachers that I work with and all the people that appear in my books and videos and so on, all of them um, we met at and worked uh, with that in the university context. And so what would happen is this. one of the, we And also, too, we have a compl an explicitly open learning system. I can't stress how important that is, and the importance will become obvious, I hope, as we elaborate this story. But unlike most systems which are fundamentally closed to a greater or less degree, in our system, we, we don't even pretend to know it all. We, we say we know something about um, what we're teaching. We can demonstrate all the things that we're teaching. We can help you achieve those same patterns if you want. But what I would do with my teachers during that 27-year period, if someone said to me, I want to go and work with this yoga teacher, I want to work with this Pilates teacher, I want to work with this movement person, I'd say, go and do it. Go, go. 
and they'd go and do that and sometimes the teachers would be away for six months or so and as soon as they came back I would then they'd come back to the advanced class this is the group that met every week which included all the teachers plus our senior students and I'd say okay just come back from this workshop show us something interesting that we might like to play with and we literally would workshop that movement pattern or this exercise or whatever it was that class now if the majority of the teachers there got excited by whatever it was that the the outside person coming back in was showing that would get taught of course to the students the rest of the student body which numbered typically between 800 and a thousand or so at any given time or certainly between i'm just doing the math now certainly between 500 and 750 is probably more accurate but that's the student body that would have any given year they would go and teach that new technique to those students our students that we'd been working with for a while and the very next advanced class, we'd get the report back on whether or not it got the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And what this means, Bill, is that our system has been changing at warp speed for that whole period of time. And now that the, the system is being taught on most continents, although not on the US anymore for reasons I'll go into, um, because it's being taught everywhere and because we have these incredibly cheap Vimeo on-demand programs, I think the most expensive programs... 20 bucks from me and most of them around between $2.50 and, and 10 um, and also all the big exercises are on YouTube anyway they're just not collated in you'd have to work your way through them all um, we have an immense amount of feedback from the people who've been using the second order system which is basically learning by video all, and a huge number of those people turn up at our workshops I know I've worked with people in the last workshop that I taught in Sydney who'd only contact with me was via the YouTube channel. Anyway, the point is this. When you have an explicitly open learning system, which is something that we're deeply committed to, you are looking for new ideas outside your own system all the time, and you've got a framework within which some of those new ideas might be able to be slotted and used. If you're not an open system, you'll spend a lot of your energy protecting your own boundaries or protecting your brand. This is a complete misdirection and will absolutely guarantee that your system will fail it'll only be a matter of time i could say a lot more on that there's a very famous philosopher called lakatosh um, who coined the term degenerating paradigm the degenerating paradigm is where the majority of the effort in the system is devoted to protecting your own boundaries or your own brand believe me it's only a matter of time before it fails so look i don't know whether i adequately answered your question or not and if i didn't please ask it again yeah, you definitely did. And along those lines, one of the things I really admire about you is that you don't overhype things like so many other people do out there. You provide us with realistic expectations. But I do know that you have some phenomenal breakthroughs as well. So can you give our listeners maybe an example of one of those breakthroughs? Yeah, we were running a stretch therapy for performance workshops in Adelaide um, at a gym. Uh, and a guy who said... I'd never been able to get past about 45 degrees in the pancake, and that's with my back, you know, bent completely forward, and so not in good form at all. And by doing a couple of contractions and by doing a gracilis release, which is a, a manual technique that we use on some people, not all, um, which actually physically separates the gracilis muscle from the inner hamstring muscle. I'll get into why that's useful in a moment. Um, he literally was able to lay himself down on the floor with his tummy and chest on the floor, head on the floor, still holding his feet, and he just stayed in that position for about five minutes. And when he came off the floor, 
he was as white as a sheet, literally as white as a sheet. And I said to him, "What's the matter?" And he said, "I'm just in a." I'm, he said, "I'm just in a state of shock." Anyway, cut a long story short, he lay down for 15 minutes, and this is the this is the big take-home thing. He recovered completely within that 15 minute period of time. But he has always been able to do that pose since then. Even the very next day, he was able to back up and do that pose. The point is this. He reset an area of the brain, which is called the somatosensory cortex, which is where all the information from the proprioceptors, which are sense organs, most most numerous in the soles of the feet and palms of the hand, but also spread out to the rest of the body, and mechanoreceptors, which are the devices the body uses to work out how much force is needed to be applied in particular situations. And he completely reset what his brain thought his body was capable of doing in a process that literally took five minutes. Now, this is unusual. Wow. I mean, um, this is not to be expected, and that's something else that we say. We never say, well, I'm going to talk, talk about what we don't say. We never say that people who come to our workshops can expect breakthroughs because some people don't have a breakthrough. They just have a modest increase. They go away armed with information, and then we see them at a workshop in a year's time, and they have improved hugely, or they join our forums, and you can see photographs of them progressing month by month, and everyone who does the work progresses. What's interesting, though, is that the speed of the progress cannot be predicted from any other athletic quality that you might have. Um, you can't even say that it'll be slower than normal, given quality X. The fact is, Bill, nothing can be said about it until the person themselves actually gets down on the floor and tries to start working on their body in this way. And it's actually the sensations that come back from the body which tells you whether that person is going to be um, on a long road before they become really flexible or whether the road is going to be smooth and relatively quick. Now, something that does not yield well to the scientific method, and I can speak here because this is what my PhD research was mostly about, the sensation of stretching and the sensation of pain for a beginner are identical. They are the same sensation. When you move into a stretch, the feeling you get back from your body is not a pleasant, wonderful sensation at all. It's a horrible sensation, in fact. And the body's own protection mechanisms cut in at full power. And that is the reason why most stretching systems don't work very well. If your body is saying, no, 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 I say again, no, like Cyrano de Bergerac in that famous play, you're just not going to move past that point. Your body has already gone into a fight-or-flight response, or it's actually mediated by the fight-or-flight response. It's actually a panic mode. And what happens is when you try to push yourself past this unpleasant sensation, all the muscles that are being stretched literally increase their tension, and the body just says no. Now, I mean, all of your audience can understand exactly what I'm talking about, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Everyone's had that experience in the beginning when they first started stretching. But... If you can show someone experientially, so not, not conceptually, experientially, this is the key difference in our work, I think, we have hundreds of techniques which will lead to an experiential change of experience. That is to say, you'll be in this position, you'll do something, say something to yourself, relax your tummy, whatever the technique is, or pull back in the opposite direction, or whatever the techniques are, and we've got lots of them. And then when you go to stretch again, the quality of that sensation, which up until that point was a protective sensation or a pain sensation, that will have changed. And that is the guts of our system. 
how to change the experience of stretching. I'm glad you brought up that sensation of stretching because that pain is so strong. So when we get into that stretch, can you give us some direction as to what we should be doing? Sure. When you get into a stretch and you're feeling this very strong sensation, the question to ask yourself is, what is my mind doing right now? Now, that might just sound a bit bizarre and left field, but let me try and flesh it out and make the connection directly. For most people, when their body experiences a strong stretch, the experience in the mind is, the technical term is, aversion. It means that I want to get out of this as quickly as possible. That's what aversion is. Aversion is a situation or a concept or a thought or anything that causes you to want to recoil or to move away. It could be could be your girlfriend asking you, tell me, what are you thinking about right now? That's a classic one for men. <laughs> um, because a lot of men don't want to actually talk about what they're thinking about. And so the movement of the mind will be to move away from that. I'm making a joke, but you get what I mean. So that's aversion. And the opposite of aversion is desire, which is the literal movement towards the object. These are two of the fundamental movements of the mind as described by the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, and they are as relevant and as accurate today as when he first uttered them. And the, 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 the crucial, crucial link to the sensation of stretching is first to recognize what is my mind doing? What reaction is it experiencing? And in 99% of cases of people who are not flexible, when you get into a strong stretch, I'll give a thought experiment for your um, listeners. Let's say you're in a yoga class, you're wearing socks on your feet, you've got, you're working on a shiny floor, and the yoga teacher stands up and you're the only man in the room and all the rest are women, let's say, and you're up the front of the class because you're a keen and you're a keen student. And the teacher says, now just slide down into side splits. Now what happens is people will slide down until their legs are far enough apart and then what they experience in their body is sheer panic or fear. Terror, it has been described to me as. Even watching someone slide into side splits if you don't have slide splits in your own body, will provoke part of that response. If you imagine it, you might even feel it. You think, oh my God, no, that would feel terrible. And if you watch what happens in your mind, your mind recoils from it or experiences aversion, as the Buddha would say. This is gold. Because what we do is we will bring the person out of that position just enough so that the fear response or the pain response in the muscles and remember I said the stretch sensation and pain in a beginning student is experienced at the same point in the range of movement what happens when you move yourself slightly out of that position it might only be half an inch out all of a sudden you become aware that those strong sensations they decrease then we direct the students to relax their tummy everyone who is stretching strongly, holds everything tight. It's almost impossible to stop yourself not doing that or stop yourself from doing that. And so we say, okay, back off, support yourself in whatever way you need to support yourself, take a breath in, and as you breathe out, let your tummy go completely soft, and then this is the next key bit of gold. Now, what does that feel like? And you can see around the room People are then re-interrogating their bodies to see what the response is coming back from the body. And that response has changed. 
that's the opening right there. Once you understand that these techniques will change the experience, and this is the paradox, the beautiful paradox, the experience itself changes. And then you go through the rest of the workout and you leave it alone. You come back in a week's time, let's say. When you go to stretch that same part again, the sensation is different. It is not the same panic response. It moves from being a pain slash panic response to, ah, I'm feeling a stretch sensation in my muscles. Once you've made that transition to being able to dispassionately simply experience what the sensations are, already the window is opened. And if you keep doing the work, the window just keeps opening. Now, something that a lot of people are dealing with is also daily aches and pains. What what is what would you say is one of the most important things for them to do, or or one of the or, or one of the most important discoveries that you have found out about people with daily aches and pains? Well, Bill, you're opening another massive can of worms. I'll try and be brief here, but my whole book, which is called Overcome Neck and Back Pain, I've written a few, as you know. The whole book Overcome Neck and Back Pain actually came out of our experiences at the university. I wasn't trying to write a book, um, you know, based on the evidence or having I, look. Again, I'm, I'm having to explain a very long and complex process very simply here, but when I actually got some funding to do some work in this area, which actually led to the book Overcome Neck and Back Pain, I spent three years in the library stacks. We have seven libraries on campus at the ANU. I spent three years doing nothing but reading the scientific literature on back pain and neck pain. And what I found was there are incredible gaping holes in the research. Um, no one had identified the muscular causes of back pain, which are now just considered normal. Not one person at that point. When I published my first academic paper with a rather grandiose title of uh, Low Back Pain, Full Colon Review and Prescription, which, which I admit now was a bit arrogant of me, um, I identified six or seven causal mechanisms for back pain, which science at that point had not once considered anywhere in the research anywhere in the literature, and I'm talking about physiotherapy literature, um, orthopedic literature, chiropractic literature, osteopathic literature, nursing literature, and general practitioner's literature. I literally sieged that work for three years. And you won't find any references to tight hip flexors or tight quadratus lumborum or any of the muscles that we now know are causally active in back pain and neck pain. But let's, let's come back to your general question because it will answer how overcome neck and back pain actually manifested. I'd been teaching just stretching exercises, nothing more than that, at the university for probably three or four years before I started my master's research. And a number of students had come to me and, and they said again and again, uh, this would be a list of honestly 50 people over that period of time, they would say things like, look, I, I didn't tell you when I enrolled for the class that I used to have back pain or I used to have neck pain or shoulder pain or hip pain or whatever the kind of pain was that they had, and I don't have it anymore. And this is the question, this is the gold. Do you think the stretching had anything to do with this? Now, I'm, I mean, you think you probably think I'm just making this up, that people couldn't say that or couldn't be so dumb. But we're talking about, um, what, uh, 1985, 84, 85? No one had actually considered using stretching exercises as a potential treatment for anything at that point. Do you get it? And so 
the book, I started to collate what these people were telling me, and, and, and this is what I've, I found. And I, I actually want to re- and talk about something that was a real roadblock in this thinking too, because it actually explains a huge amount and it directly answers your questions of what people should do about aches and pains. It was this. I was having a really hard time, you can imagine, recommending stretching exercises for people for back problems and neck problems at one point because in my advanced class were people who would, on any ordinary scale, um, test as hypermobile. They'd be you know, considered by physiotherapists as being way off the normal, the active range of flexibility. So people who could lie face up, for example, and pull their leg down next to their ear, right, with the other leg on the ground. So doing front splits but upside down. Plenty of people in my advanced class could do that. But, and in, I was also running an over 40s class, which became an over 50s class, where plenty of people had the flexibility of a house brick, just like us. And so, on the one hand, but here's the thing many people in the advanced class had neck or back problems, even though they had this incredible flexibility. And many people in the over 50s group or 40s group, as it was then, didn't have back or neck problems, but had no flexibility. So here's my dilemma. How can I possibly, with my hand on my heart, recommend stretching exercises as a general palliative treatment for neck and back problems? And so I didn't. But then one day I had this honestly astounding breakthrough. And this is the direct answer to your question about aches and pains. This is what I found. I looked one day with a fresh eye on the students in the over 40s class and the ones who didn't have problems whilst they didn't have much flexibility what flexibility they had was symmetrical hmm. and the people in the advanced class who had super flexibility both legs of you know which would test off the scale they had remarkably unsymmetrical flexibility and then i started looking at the problem sets from this completely fresh eye i realized that a symmetry in flexibility, and later we came to understand this also applies to strength too, which as an aside is why we recommend unilateral shoulder and unilateral hip and leg strengthening exercises as the way into becoming stronger, never never bilateral. And the reason there, just to continue the aside, is if you have a strong pattern of asymmetry and you do conventional weight training where your arms and legs are used together, the chances are you will simply make your existing patterns worse over time. So getting back to the the groups in these two classes, we found that the people that had symmetrical flexibility, whether they were loose on an absolute scale or tight on an absolute scale, these were people that tended to have no problems in their body, no aches and pains, and who experienced movement as something comfortable and enjoyable and who experienced their body as feeling pleasant most of the time. The people who had asymmetry or asymmetrical flexibility, whether they're tight or loose on any independent absolute scale, they're the ones that had the problems in their body. They're the ones who had recurring back pain, recurring shoulder pain, recurring neck pain. So the short answer to your question is, if anyone has aches and pains anywhere in the body, the first thing that they have to look at is, what does their flexibility look like when you compare the key left-right patterns and the key left-right patterns are hamstring flexibility, quadricep and hip flexor flexibility, right-left lateral flexion of the whole spine, and right-left rotation of the whole spine. If those things are not similar, you have a symmetry of the sort that were you to engage in conventional training will likely lead to an injury in time. Huh, that is a very interesting finding. Thank you for sharing that. 
So just as a final question, uh, is there anything that you would like to leave our audience with? Is there anything that you would want them to consider or something that you propose that they do? Yes. Um, the most important thing for anyone to do is to incorporate more movement in their body on a, a daily or at least a few times a week basis. And when I say more movement, I don't just mean going out at lunchtime and doing a power walk while wearing shoes. Um, the fact is the human body is remarkably efficient walking and walking, although I think personally think it's one of the greatest exercises on the planet, walking insulated from the environment by thick-soled running shoes and walking on concrete is not the kind of walking that I recommend for anyone. What I do and what I do myself is I walk in bare feet. Now, I know that's, a, that's an acquired taste over a long period of time. I've been barefoot for about 10 years now. Um, and I walk everywhere in bare feet. Now, I do carry a pair of thongs if I'm walking in the mall so that when I actually step off the mall surface into someone's shop, um, I'll actually put my thongs on so that I'm looking at least a bit respectful of their space. Um, but what you need to do if you really want to re-educate and remake your body rapidly, you need to find some gravel, you need to stand on it for a while first, and then you need to learn to move on gravel without hurting yourself. And what you'll find is, especially if you've got really tender feet like most people do who, who wear shoes, you'll find that moving on gravel or a hard surface is infinitely more difficult than your concept of it will be. It actually, if you, if you do another thought experiment and just remember those old Walt Disney cartoons of people walking on hot coals, what they look like, where their you know, knees are springing off, the, they're trying to stay in as little contact with the hot coals as possible, they're going, ooh, ooh, and the shoulders are lifting up and down and everything else, that's exactly what you'll do when you walk on sharp gravel the first time. Your body will be doing everything it can to remove that sharp contact from the bottom of the feet. And that starts a whole massively complex proprioceptive chain of events which will in time stabilise your ankles, stabilise your knees, stabilise your hips and your back as well. So firstly, walk definitely but walk up and down hills not on the flat walking up and down hills will challenge your balance it will especially if you do it in bare feet or five fingers those minimalist shoes they're the sort of intermediate step um, just getting some movement in your body where your body is actually in contact with the environment and by that i mean the soles of your feet are in contact with the environment that will change the way you move virtually immediately believe it or not do I recommend that people go and, and, and run a half marathon in bare feet? No, of course not. The, the muscles in your feet, there are 27 bones in the feet, and I can't remember how many muscles, I think 60. I could be wrong. It, it's not important. They, they'll be atrophied. If you wear shoes, I guarantee you, your feet will not be strong. You can. I've seen guys that have the most massive um, shoulders and arms and quads and everything else, and when you look at their feet, the feet look like they belong to a different person. The feet are literally the most important muscles in your body. And, and it's, it's no accident that Oriental Medicine spends a massive amount of time um, treating acupuncture points and so on on the soles of the feet, when in fact they could treat acupuncture points anywhere on the body. The soles of the feet, we don't really understand the full role of this yet. But again, I'll give you another thought experiment. If you imagine standing on one leg, straight away you'll know that you balance better on one leg than the other. So there's, there's the way into understanding the symmetry from a balance and coordination point of view. 
Um, and if you watch what happens in the foot that's on the standing leg, as soon as you even start to think about taking the other foot away from the ground, if you can watch your ankle in the mirror, you'll see the ankle has to stabilize itself. That means you put more weight on the outside of your foot. The arch lifts away from the floor automatically. You don't have to do anything to provoke this. It's hardwired in every person's body. And if you watch what happens and you stay balanced one leg for a long enough period of time, you'll see the majority of work that's being done in the body is actually the lower leg muscles and the feet muscles themselves just to form the three-point platform that is necessary to stand on and be still on that point. That's the way in. Kid, it's been truly an honor to have you on. His website is stretchtherapy.net. Go check it out. And I just want my listeners to know that your work runs even deeper than what's presented in just your books and videos. There's also your forum, your blog, which does a fantastic job of supporting your work. Your YouTube channel has over 100 videos. And I personally hope that I can attend one of your workshops one day. That's definitely on my bucket list. Uh, I would be so grateful if you did. I mean, because we're committed explicitly to an open learning system this is all we want bill we just want the information to get out there if you if the information gets out there everyone will do well i mean it's what what really really i have to say upsets me in the in the era of the donald is that the majority of stuff that's out there on the internet is marketing or form if you like over substance marketing which can be as slick as anything and as beautiful as anything but the content is just so suspect our stuff is honestly a triumph of content over form. The stuff that we have is not, not slick, and I'm afraid we don't use social media very much because there's only the two of us. Um, we absolutely need people like you to get this information out there so that your audience can actually be helped, not just be sold to, you know, which is the way so many systems work these days. You know, pay 200 bucks and your life will change. Yeah, sure. Everything you um, said, I couldn't agree more with. <laughs> and our forums, you mentioned the forums and the blog, they're both free. We just need a, a real email address to sign up. The forums are a free resource, and you don't have to be a member to to dip into that. You can actually follow the stories of literally hundreds of people who've changed themselves doing these seemingly simple things. And this is the last point I want to make. Stretching looks simple. It looks like the acquisition of flexibility is just another problem set. But I assure you, it is profoundly different to any other physical attribute you want to try and improve. The acquisition of flexibility will actually change you at your core, not because someone's given you a mantra to chant or because someone says, you know, follow this guru or this, that or the other. Um, I'm as far away from a guru as you can be and still be on the planet. These are just simply a collection of simple, relatively simple techniques, which when put together in the framework that we present them in, will literally change you from the inside out. And here's the thing, not in any particular direction, not like an Anthony Robbins kind of be all you can be thing, but rather, what is the real you that's inside the you that walks and talks today? We absolutely have no idea what that looks like, what it could look like. And and compared to any other kind of training, flexibility training is the way into understanding yourself at a very deep level. So for that reason alone, it seems to me at least anyway, it's worthwhile considering. And after this jam-packed interview, I think everyone is considering. Kit, thank you for being so gracious with your time and sharing all your knowledge and wisdom with us. It's been an honor. (laughs) A pleasure, my friend. I'll talk to you again soon, Bill. Thanks. There you have it. I could talk to Kit for hours about this, but hopefully there was a lot there for you to put into action. Everything we discussed is in the show notes, so check it out at anchorsofhealth.com slash five. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next episode. 
Peace. Peace.